Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to the Your Wealth podcast. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. As most investors would be aware, world markets have staged an astonishing comeback since COVID caused share prices to fall off a cliff in late February. We had the sharpest bear market in history. It wasn't the deepest, but it was the sharpest with both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ now making record highs again. We've actually also seen the sharpest turnaround on record. So it's been quite a ride, particularly when you consider that there's actually no guaranteed vaccine. Unemployment is at decade highs and many major businesses have either failed or they're relying on taxpayer support to stay afloat. So our market's getting ahead of themselves. Today I'm joined by Andrew Clifford, the CIO of Platinum International, which is one of Australia's most recognised investment managers, and Julian McCormack, Platinum's investment specialist, who are here to talk to us about why we need to keep a wits about us in this environment. Andrew, Julian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Gemma. Great to be with you, Gemma. Well, I, I'm asking two questions, literally. So you're concerned about where the market is right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely, Gemma. So, look, I... You know, my 30 years of doing this, or it's a little more than that now, you know, there have been a, a small number of occasions where we've really seen uh, markets or parts of the market enter into what I'd call a, you know, a truly speculative mania. And um, we have a large group of stocks now, and it's not the ones that people often refer to. It's not the Microsofts and Amazons or Facebooks and Googles. It is, uh, it is the Teslas, the Afterpays, but Shopify, there's a list of hundreds of these stocks, literally, that absolutely they've got bright prospects, um, but they have just reached extraordinary valuations. Uh, all the signs are there, I think, of this, you know, what you'd expect in a speculative mania. We have a huge retail presence in markets. Um, we have these very strong themes that are, uh, are presenting themselves in the markets, whether it's green energy, electric vehicles, uh, COVID vaccines. Um, and again, I'd always say that the themes are good investment themes. It's just that the, the prices have become just simply outrageous. Um, we have new financing vehicles. You know, in the US, we have these special purpose acquisition vehicles where you give someone your money and then they'll find something cool to buy with it. Um, you know, that's, that's a throwback to the 80s, that one. I mean, that got outlawed back then, so I'm not sure what's happening with these things. And, and what worries me is you see, you know, the individual investor, well, if you've been part of this and you've made money, that's great. Um, but what you see is more and more people being drawn into it. And, you know, really, that is what, what starts to worry me. Um, I think we're set up for a bit of a financial accident potentially at some point it will probably come out of the bond markets um we've got all this printing of money it's it's a pretty scary scene and i just you know i i worry about it um we never quite know when these things will fall apart but uh we sort of do know that they will at some point and you know people are going to be financially hurt when it does what are your thoughts on the sort of new paradigm that people like to talk to? The whole, this time it's different. Well, you know, there, it, it, there's always elements of truth in it, but ultimately the one 
absolute identity in investing is that we're trying to earn a return on our money. And when valuations are high, that's telling you that you're accepting a very low current valuation for this enormous promise. And we know from history, look, some of these companies will deliver. You know, people would have talked about Amazon like this in 2000. Uh, you lost a lot of money when the tech bubble fell apart back then, but boy, that was the great buying opportunity. But hey, you know, you know, 10 years later, you were down 50% on Microsoft. So, you know, um, it is, there is extraordinary levels of innovation. It is changing the world, but the basics of business and the basics of investing, you know, they don't change. Uh, and I think people are just being tricked by, you know, the lack of a decent interest rate that they can get at the bank or in a bond on their savings. And, um, you know, not really looking to the underlying returns in stocks. So we deal with retail investors every day and plenty of them have actually made a lot of money in this period. They've done really well. Most of them are quite nervous, frankly. So that's encouraging that people don't think that this is normal. They know they've done very well and it was lovely, but it's not necessarily to be expected in the future. What's your advice for those people? Well, I suppose I just comment if they are all nervous, and that's probably a good sign for the market that it's probably going to go a little bit higher until they're all very confident. Um, but I, I just think uh, it, it really is a time to be cautious. Um, if you've made those wins, got those wins, I, I'd be banking them. And, and maybe if you're a risk taker, you don't bank them all today, you bank a little bit each day. But ultimately, where you can make a big difference in investing is to have cash when things fall apart. Um, and that's where I would be heading. And then I think, you know, on, on the other side, there's lots of parts of the market that, you know, investors don't want to touch at the moment. They're all the things that have been hurt by COVID and hurt by the downturn. I mean, one of the themes for us uh, uh, in, in global markets has been travel stocks. Um, you know, I think travel will come back. It's part of our DNA. Even business travel will come back once we're allowed to. Um, you know, we're very optimistic about vaccines. So there are there are opportunities to be doing other things, but but at the core of it, I, I'd be um, really emphasising taking a very cautious position here, so that you have uh, reserves in place. Uh, when things do fall apart and there are there are new opportunities to be had. Was there Again, anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, I, I just would just re-emphasize the extraordinary nature of where we are. We're in the middle of one of the biggest economic downturns ever. We'll recover from that, absolutely. But the amount of money that has been created um, by all of these government policies, you know, M2 in the US was up 25% literally overnight. Um, that's what's driving this bull market in stocks. And that's slowly, that, that's a pace of money creation. Uh, if you think about air being pumped into a tire to keep it up, um, we're just not gonna maintain that. I, I just think it's very risky. Uh, market's very risky at the moment and, and that's really the core of it. So if you were trying to watch something you know, I'd just be watching that un unfolding of, uh, you know, these monetary aggregates. None of them are perfect measures of what is really going on, but they're the best we've got.
Julian, I'll turn to you now. You've been on this podcast before. You're wonderfully frank about your thoughts about where things are going and you have an extraordinary uh, understanding of the history of markets and some of the things that we've seen before. This time is quite a bit crazier than when we spoke last. Uh, what are you seeing that is concerning you? Oh, everything. <laughs> so <clears throat> this is just has all the hallmarks of a classic bubble, you know, so easy funding, uh, not just easy, I mean, monumental funding going into the monetary system, um, uh, a, a whole new paradigm type thinking. So the winner take all stuff in tech, the disruptor stuff uh, in tech and consumer and, and other areas, um, uh, plus new financing vehicles, so I, I think one of the huge drivers of what we're seeing is uh, is and continues to be uh, passive investment strategies, and and I, I really hesitate to use that term because you know if if global investors are buying the S and P five hundred now, just bear in mind I I'm really don't know the Aussie market all that well, so you you jump in when I make mistakes locally, but. If people are buying the S&P 500, they're buying a growth-tilted momentum fund and they're thinking they're getting the market. Um, and then, you know, massive retail participation with a whole wave of new investors who've come into the market, um, particularly in the States where and, – and to put, a, you know, some context around that, the big five trading platforms for everyday people in the States have seen trading volumes – um, not quite quintuple year on year, up 5x. So, so that is all the hallmarks you would require. And valuation ha has gone bananas. The, so everything. that's a lot of boxes ticked. <laughs> There's so many things that you've raised there. I will say at the beginning of this, and we just had this conversation offline, so I'll, I'll put it uh, online. So the Australian experience is interesting. Um, we at NabTrader have had an enormous number of new investors, so you're absolutely right. We've seen this real flood of enthusiastic new investors and also experienced investors absolutely throwing money at the market since it came off, right? So we had record cash balances in February. Investors knew that the market was pretty toppy. They didn't feel confident. There was a lot of upside. They were sitting on the sidelines. You know, volumes were really, really low in January right. and And March, April, May, we saw new applications uh, increase fivefold in March. They were still right. up threefold in April. We saw volumes triple, all that kind of stuff. So exactly yep. what you're saying. Yep. But we didn't see what you would call irrational behaviour or particularly speculative behaviour, right? Prices were off very dramatically. The top five stocks that were bought were, uh, or instruments, I'll have to say, were the big four banks and an ASX 200 ETF. They were the things that people would buy. So they're buying really vanilla stuff. We didn't see a significant uplift in day trading. We don't have fractional investing in Australia in any meaningful way. Very, very little of it was on margin. So we didn't see sort of... Um, poorly informed wild behavior of the sort that is discussed in the US this Robin Hood phenomenon we're talking about all the time mm -hmm. and it's been sort of thrown about here and um, 
even in conversations with the ASX and others, it's not what we see here. It is different uh, mm. in terms of the ASX, but our investors are very, very interested in what happens overseas. They're very well aware that mm. uh, that the S&P 500, you know, is making record highs again. Mm. Um, the NASDAQ is definitely making record highs again, you know, the S&P 500 was up fourfold when the ASX was only just getting back to its pre-GFC highs, that sort of thing. So the Australian experience has not been the same in terms of markets. You know, the speculation doesn't appear to be there as greatly. But let's start with all the many things that you've discussed. Talk to me about the, the funding side of things, what happens when governments start throwing money at anyone and everyone who's willing to take it. Yeah, so there's two, there's two separate elements to that. I mean, one is a monetary phenomenon and the other is fiscal. And just remembering that we've been in an environment of pretty lacklustre fiscal support for slow-growing economies for a long time. That's, that's going back oh, at least a decade. So, so every major economy in the world... Uh, with the sort of partial exception of China, it's a different story, but every major economy in the world shrank deficits from 2010 on amid very, very poor growth rates. And that, that is an unusual thing to do. That, that wasn't what happened after the Great Depression. So, you know, we, we had a long, slow, tepid recovery from the worst financial crisis in 100 years or 80 years. Um, matched with a sense of, you know, the need for austerity. That is a big explanation for why you've got people who are pretty angry uh, all over the world about their political systems, I, I would contend. So the fiscal side of things is it, it, it's almost like it's making up for lost time. The monetary side of things um, is just so extraordinary. So... What we've seen is the first in the States, the first time in the data that we have back to 1970, that a recession, the onset of a recession, because the Fed is calling this a recession, it started on February 19. Um, the first time ever that bank credit uh, growth went up with the onset of a recession, that, that's never happened before. And that's largely because we've stuffed incredible amounts of liquidity into the banking system. And so we've, we've avoided the, the liquidity part of, of a crisis. And, and so what I mean by that is liquidity just means meeting your bills, right? So in a household sense, we've got all this money stuffed in and we can meet next month's credit card payment. That's okay. But underlying all that, we might have a mortgage or, you know, um, fundamental liabilities, um, that are very large relative to our ongoing income, but we've always been able to service those, um, that, that's solvency. And solvency in the economies of the world, you know, the major economies globally, is a real issue. Um, there is a sense that we've provided enough liquidity and then, you know, the virus will be under control and then economies will get back to work and then income will go up and we'll all be off to the races. That's possible. That's possible. I would contend it's pretty unlikely, and I don't think people should understand what just happened 
as the end of a cycle. It doesn't look at all like the end of a cycle. Um, it looks like the reinforcement of the latter part of a cycle. So much more like 1997, 98 than like the year 2000, 2001. And so what I mean by that is you had a whole bunch of interruptions and nasty things happen in the late 90s and then the NASDAQ tripled. And that's sort of what we're doing now. So we've had a whole bunch of bumps. Back then it was the Asian crisis, Russian default, long-term capital management exploded. Then the Fed cut rates of my recollections, 400 points, 400, uh, 4%, not to be a you know, finance loser, um, 4%. And, and then began injecting liquidity into the banking system ahead of Y2K, which never happened. And then markets went bunter, ballistic. This time around, we've had the COVID crisis and then a rapid response. Uh, rates were taken down you know, to the extent that, that they could be. And you've had enormous liquidity into the system. And markets have responded pretty beautifully. So that's, that's, that's the setup. That's the setup. Um, just a reminder, what happened after that was the NASDAQ, which was sort of the locus of the activity back then, that fell 75% and it didn't make a new high for 15 years. So that's the point I think that is so easily forgotten. You know, these numbers look so beautiful. You're right. You know, the markets have responded so beautifully. Um, and every time there's news of a vaccine, everyone gets very excited and there's a lot of confidence it's going to happen. I like to remind people that apparently we've never had a successful COVID vaccine before. Yeah. Do you know that? Coronavirus. Yeah. Apparently, we've never had, never had a successful coronavirus vaccine. I'm like, oh, good, because yeah. I'm sure yeah. we've never tried. Yeah. Um, then again, I'm sure we've never thrown the amount of resources at it that we currently are. But, it, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> there seems to be an assumption that it is. Yeah. So talk to me about the new paradigm. I mean, it, it's an ongoing joke in finance that every time you hear this time, it's different. It's time to sell. Um, but uh, it, this one's it still so feels different. like one that we keep talking about. Yes, yes, exactly, Gemma. So, so this one's so different because everybody knew in 2000, oh, I was pretty young and sort of not, you know, I was, I was distally in financial markets, you know, sort of doing internships and stuff, but it, it, everybody knew back then that it was crazy. But this time around, the language I get from pretty experienced people is, no, nah, these businesses are so much better now and it's all sort of meritorious. And that is narrowly true, but there's a really broad swathe of things that are just nuts. And the other thing that is oft repeated is, well, you know, Amazon didn't make a profit for ages and, you know, Netflix, you know, doesn't really make a profit, doesn't make a cash flow profit and blah, blah, blah. And so there's this sort of sense that because some of the best businesses in the history of the world have been able to succeed, that my next idea will be able to succeed, you know, some, I don't know, new fangled way of financing, whatever. And the odds of that are just incredibly low. But in the midst of, you know, um, huge liquidity into markets with um, buoyant sentiment, it's easy just to forget that the actual laws don't really change. You know, it's, I've said this to you before, but it's, it, it really is just the same as radio stocks in 1928, um, IBM or EDS in 1967, Japanese stocks in 1988, uh, and internet stocks in 2000. And people always say, no, no, but 
but no, that's crazy because the 2000 comparison uh, was at a time when those businesses were all immature and didn't make any money. And people are just not remembering what happened. All of the telco space went to the moon. Go, look, go and look at a long-term chart of, of, of Telstra. All of the media space went to the moon. Go and look at all of the big media incumbents back then. So it was tech, media, and telcos all went to the absolute moon. And a lot of them were 100-year-old businesses that posted profits, but because they had a sort of whiff of new economy about them, they went to the moon. People are just not remembering what happened. And also the leadership of the, of the 2000 event, Oracle, Dell, Juniper Systems, Microsoft, um, um, you know, Apple, on and on, they were profitable. <laughs> There's nothing different about this. There are lots of differences, sure. You know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. This new paradigm stuff, it, it's never ended well. So as I mentioned, you know, many of our investors have done just superbly well over the last six months. And this is what's what's really challenging. I find it really interesting. We will have plenty of investors who have only ever bought a share in the last six months and they'll be up 50%. Uh, and, you know, for anyone listening, I'm sure you know that a 50% return over six months is unusual. Like, that doesn't happen very often. It's delightful when it does, but please yeah. don't get used to it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the sort of long-term average, I remember when I first started in markets a long time ago, and, you know, the, the estimates, you know, so they give forward estimates of what you should assume is like 4% income, 4% growth on your share portfolio, or it might be, you know, 5% income, 3% growth, whatever it might be. But around 8% was what they yeah. were telling you to expect. Totally. About, uh, eight, about 8 nominal and probably about 6 real. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, you know, inflation was quite a bit higher back then too. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we've seen some really different kind of numbers, uh, but we also saw that short, sharp shock. Because people didn't feel that short, sharp shock for very long, yeah. um, it, it hasn't really... Uh, it doesn't seem to damage investor psychology in any way. Very yeah. different to the GFC where things fell, yeah. settled, fell, fell, yeah. fell, 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 ground down for ages, exhausted yeah. everybody, and then started climbing back. It took forever. You know, it took a really, really long time for markets to reach their highs again. And the yeah. ASX, as I said, only reached its high in July last year. It yeah. was only back over its high sort of, you know, 11 years later. So it was, it was a really meaningful period of time it took for things to return to normal. What are your thoughts for investors who have had the confidence to put money to work in the last six months? So good on you, right? If you had the confidence to put money to work in March or April, and many investors have, uh, you've done incredibly well and you mm. understand that buying stocks cheaper rather than more expensive is a good idea. Great, yep. good work. You've yep. done really well out of it. A lot of our investors are clearly nervous, right? We've seen our volumes fall right away. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines. We've seen some profit taking. So people are not assuming that things are going to go to the moon from here. But what are your thoughts about where to look, look for opportunity? Do you take profits? How do you respond to this? So, so yes, have a lot of cash and take a lot of profit. But, but look, I mean, maintain a bit of exposure if you want. You know, if you put 10 bucks in and you made a whole bunch of money and now you've got 15, leave a bit on the table, but, but take your initial capital plus a bit off the table, right? And, and, and sorry, I, I use this tone that it's so simple. It, it, what markets are telling you is that the future is rosy. 
and that's possible. But it's, in my view, not likely. So now, now why do I say that? Um, all of the drivers that have allowed for the last sort of 40 years of asset price appreciation have changed. I mean, massively. So what are interest rates going to do going forward? What are tax rates going to do going forward? What is the labour share of the economic pie going to do going forward with the resurgence of populism and, you know, that kind of stuff? And what's inflation going to do? Um, all of those things have changed so dramatically and they were changing a lot and then COVID happened. And so just, you know, people are in a new environment and it hasn't manifested itself yet. We're in this enormously deflationary environment with something like 20% of the workforce of every major economy on the sidelines in some form. But they're being made good with transfer payments um, for now. And there's sort of an assumption that everybody will just go back to work. Maybe that's possible. But people just need to think through what happens when assets change hands. Because that's, that's what happens at the end of a cycle. You destroy capital. So, so, so debt gets written off and equity goes to zero. And then the assets change hands. Is that quick or is it slow? It's really slow. It's really slow. So if you were going broke in March, you're probably just showing up as, as, a, as a bad debt and not even having been bitten off now. And if you're, if you're a board member, you've probably suspended guidance and you don't know you're insolvent, so you haven't declared bankruptcy. You're just sort of watching and waiting. I don't know. <laughs> Pretty uncertain environment and you've got some protection, some sort of safe harbour around the level of uncertainty so you won't get done for trading while insolvent. That is happening everywhere. So the notion that the outlook for these economies is really, really good is highly questionable. And should the amount of stimulus be slightly too much, we will get a renewed bout of inflation. And people won't believe that, but please go and look at the CPI numbers in the states disaggregated by sector. Food and healthcare, so basically the only thing households are spending money on in this environment, they're up 5 and 7% year on year. There's lots of inflation in the system. Yeah, it's, wow. just that, it's just that whole sectors of the economy have gone to zero. So within CPI, we're still including restaurant meals and transport services and hotels. And, and there's no money being spent on that. So the weighted average impact of that on a household is zero. Mm. And, the, and the weighted average impact of food and healthcare is a lot. And it's going up by five and seven. There is a lot of inflation in the system. So what I'm saying is, we're walking a tightrope here between a depression, which is a real possibility. If we get any mistakes, we can have really big, big things go wrong, right? And inflation. And inflation is terrible for asset prices. Now, people will think, oh, your prices go up in inflation. <laughs> go and look what happened in the 70s. The Dow didn't get up above a 1,000 points for 15 years. So that's the kind of world that people have to grapple with, but they're not because it's pretty easy not to. So, so let me just demonstrate something that is 
playing on my mind at the moment. If you go and look at, so if people can go and check this stuff for themselves, just Google St. Louis Fed and Senior Loan Officer Survey. That goes back to the 90s. It's a, it's a measure of whether banks are tightening or loosening credit conditions for big businesses, small businesses, credit cards, et cetera, et cetera. Credit conditions are the tightest they've ever been, except for in the GFC. But we've had an explosion of credit going into the economy. So we're living on yesterday's credit. Put it another way, the last time credit provision looking forward looked this tight as measured by those surveys, credit creation went negative for the only time in 60 years. And that wasn't fun. So for everyone who thinks that this is pretty easy, and by the sound of it, your investors don't. Mm. But there are many who do. For everyone who thinks, oh, well, the Fed will just print, it's all fine and blah, blah, blah. You're either, <laughs> so banks, senior loan officers in the States, which is the financing. So why do I always focus on the States? If the States has a risk-off event, the dollar goes up and it crushes global growth. Mm. You just have to understand the financing cycle in the States. It's the one that matters. China and Russia and whatever are trying to <laughs> wriggle around it, but they're not, it hasn't worked yet. So um, that's the backdrop here. And, and, and the lovely thing that's happened is liquidity has gone into markets. People will genuinely think that they understood the businesses that they bought and they knew it was a good time to buy and whatever. Cool. But please do consider that maybe you got lucky because credit provision into an economy exploded going into a recession for the only time that I know of in modern economic history. And so what happens to that liquidity when the economy shrinks in size? Because economies have shrunk by like 20% as credit creation's grown. So you don't need as much walking around money, do you? Because you can't eat out, you can't do, you go on holiday, you can't whatever. And it's in the presence of pretty significant income inequality and wealth inequality in these big developed economies. So, so lots of people who don't need the dough are getting the dough. The liquidity is going into asset prices. So if you feel that you've been a genius buying NAB, maybe you have, but please take into consideration that maybe you're riding a wave and you don't know where that wave's going. So look, by all means, maintain some exposure to markets because we are in a bubble and it can go anywhere. But do, for goodness sake, take some profit, <laughs> get your capital out you put in, plus a bit more, and like leave a bit in there for fun. Uh, that would be my strong <laughs> advice to people. So you guys were buying pretty enthusiastically when prices came off as well, I believe. And there are, you know, we were speaking, so Bianca was on the podcast a little while back. There are some sectors of the economy in a COVID environment that are going to do surprisingly well. Um, well it's not surprising if you know it's COVID that's <laughs> send your economy off a cliff. Um, yeah. But that was, that was news to pretty much all of us in January. Um, so is there anything that you're finding attractive and appealing in this environment there's obviously a lot to be worried about it is it's not yeah. great it's a challenging environment but there are some things that obviously there's some stocks that have done very well but sectors also yeah there's loads of stuff that's the that's a really good question because it yeah thank you because it focuses back on what to do looking forward which is because market leadership globally has been so narrow 
So, so, so few stocks have done all the heavy lifting. So the top five of the S&P explain more than 100% of the S&P's gains this year. So 495 have gone down, five have gone up. <laughs> so there's lots of stuff. A lot of, of investors, stuff. sorry to interrupt, a lot of investors are also not aware Tesla's not part of the S&P 500. So That's it right. hasn't actually joined the index yet. So if you're wondering why it's not representing a large proportion of the game, it's actually not in that index and it will be added soon which is going to confuse the hell out of everybody um, it's going to be quite fascinating you'll be buying it when it's in the top 20 um, yeah. and, uh, and at record high so yeah it's, it's an interesting time well, no, watching I, I, a few things I, do really well Gemma as of today it would be a top 10 stock so it's bigger than Walmart now I mean it yeah, is my job is out of date dude, <laughs> because it goes out of date every day yeah. it goes out of date every day you know, so, so that is exactly the kind of behaviour you see at parts of the cycle where it's dangerous. And, and, and a lot of that gets presented as, oh, yeah, it's the future, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get into the Tesla debate. I, I have my views on that company and <laughs> they're pretty resolute. Um, the price is just the price. But the broader point is liquidity going into systems that are shrinking has to go somewhere and it forces it forces asset prices up um, but looking forward what does that mean you know for you know a whole bunch of ways it, if if we get the inflationary scenario so we keep stimulating uh, aggressively into economies that that aren't growing all that rapidly we will get inflation you, people must not think it's dead. Inflationary regimes change and they change very quickly. So in 71, US CPI, US consumer price infl index inflation was, you know, 2%. By 75, it was 19. Uh, same happened in 1917 through 1920. There's another one in the 40s or something as well where these regimes just shift really quickly. And let me put it another way. If a monopolist changes a price, and keeps changing the price, prices go up, and governments are changing the price, right? Because they're paying money into systems that are shrinking. So, you know, that's going to force up general levels of pricing if it continues, and if bank credit continues to expand as well, which is sort of being forced, I think, by governments forcing some of these programs through the banking system, so the Paycheck Protection Program in the states. In that inflationary environment probably the US dollar weakens relative to other currencies. And that might trigger some complaints in people, but the relativities matter. It feels like everyone's stimulating together, but no, they're not. Germany's doing 5% government budget deficit. Japan, eight, China, 11. The US will be 23, 24 by the time they're all done. It's 18 to the end of July, percent GDP government budget deficit. So it's doing double to five times the other major economies in terms of budget deficits. And that is probably going to weaken that currency. Um, so in that environment, EM, so emerging markets do very well. Uh, real assets and inverted commas do very well. Gold is already doing very well. It's sort of leading. And, you know, this is nothing new. In fact, it's already underway. And what I'd suggest right at the moment, tactically, is people are very, very long this trade. So I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if you get a sort of a bump here with the reversal because 
Copper's gone to three bucks, gold's gone to 2,000, oil's back at you know, 42, 43. You know, these things are moving already. But if you get an entrenched situation of sort of stagflation, the outcomes can be pretty, pretty remarkable because, you know, relative to equities, broad commodity indice type stuff, so the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, the GSCI, that is about a tenth of where it was at its local high back in 07, that sort of period. And it's about a 50th of where it was in the 70s. So any unwind of that could be remarkable. And then you get the, so, so anyone who's short dollars, you know, so, so they, they're, they're negatively correlated to dollars, in a world where you get wash, a, a wash with dollars where they have to keep stimulating like mad, that's everybody else. <laughs> Right, that's China and Japan and Europe and all emerging markets, and those those markets have been just lousy relative to the US market for you know for uh, what are we at least ten years, probably more like thirteen years. So, you know that that raises a whole you know different in, environment in in which people need to be investing, and you won't be led by tech and consumer. It'll be very different. Are there any particular stocks or companies that you guys like at the moment? Uh, yeah, so we, we've actually bought a whole lot of transport, uh, sorry, sorry, travel-related businesses. Uh, so Booking Holdings and Amadeus. You know, they're they're really tough in a really tough spot for maybe another year, maybe another two years, maybe another three years. They don't need any capital. Their balance sheets are awesome, and they're just fabulous. You know sort of infinite return on capital style businesses, plat genuine platform style businesses like these big software guys are. Um, so they're really interesting. And I, and I think, you know, in the fullness of time, make people a lot of money from here. Um, look, the Chinese consumer is just such a boring <laughs> theme because it's been around for so long, particularly for people like us who've been investing in China for, you know, 30 years. But, you know, but before there was an index, we were buying Chinese stocks because we were buying them in Hong Kong. But it's, it just doesn't go away. So, you know, stocks like Anta, who is like the Anta or Ping An, uh, not Ping An, Anta or um, Li Ning, which are like the sort of Nike of, of China, they look great. Um, Ping An Insurance in China, which is just a play on, you know, as you get richer and you get more stuff, you need to insure it. Pretty simple. So, so that all looks pretty fabulous. Um, India's having a really tough time at the moment, but that economic story is pretty excellent. And the way we've been playing that in Asia is via Reliance Industries, which has um, sold a bit of its business to Facebook um, and Silver Lake and a bunch of other guys. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, and then look, in, in healthcare, you know, you, you've spoken to Bianca before, but, you know, our healthcare fund is look, you know, people carry on about disruption. The disruption in biotech is just so superb. You know, we're, yeah, we cracked the genetic code 20 years ago, but now we're able to use it. And that's just extraordinary stuff. So, you know, those, those businesses. So what am I thinking of there? Um, look, we owned Moderna. We were, we were sort of trimming into the sort of lunacy of the last little while with some in interesting behaviour by senior executives there, but that's a fascinating stock. BioNTech in Germany is a fascinating stock. 
you know, so what these guys are getting to the level of is using messenger RNA. So, so you know, little bits of genetic information to, to so they don't have to, you know, uh, grow a virus or a um, bacterium and then put it into the body. They can take tiny little bits of the information and stick that into the body and, and then get a genetic response. That's just fascinating. That's a whole new area of innovation and disruption that makes all other vaccines, you know, potentially disruptable. It's really interesting. But that's happening everywhere. It's happening across pain and psoriasis. And, you know, we're, we're just working out the codes of all this stuff. That's before you get to a big one cancer where, you know, people, if they've heard the term a cure for cancer, it, that's reflective of sort of 19th century thinking. Cancer doesn't have one cure. It has thousands of cures because it has thousands of genetic pathways that make your cells mutate. And we're working all of those out. So in, at some point in the future, you will go to the doctor, they will take a genetic sample. And if you have a form of cancer, you will get the Gemma cure for cancer. So there will be a Gemma pdl one inhibitor that you will get given and you will get cured, right? That's not far away. So all of that stuff is just fabulous. I love talking about this stuff because as, you know, as you know, and I know most of our investors are desperately looking for some exciting things to invest in. And a lot of them are very well aware that they've enjoyed the ride um, in, uh, in some of the, uh, the mania stocks that you've talked about, but there's plenty of other exciting stuff out there. And I think a lot of our investors also have loved the idea of expanding their portfolios into the kinds of things you're talking about. Healthcare, you know, it sounds so boring you start talking about it and it's fascinating and exciting um amazing and i remember learning for the first time that leukemia uh after you know it was virtually untreatable and horrific mm, yeah. and yet when they finally started testing multiple treatments at the same time they could get on top of it and, you know so the, the innovations in that field are amazing and so important amazing. So important. Uh, so for anyone who hasn't listened to that podcast with Bianca, um, please go back and listen to it. It's awesome. So she is the portfolio manager for the Platinum International Healthcare Fund. And she is also a virologist. So very, very well equipped to, uh, to actually understand what those guys are doing. Exactly. Julian, any final thoughts for investors in this very, very interesting time? Yeah, just, I would just reinforce the need for caution. Um, this is just so clearly a time where the fear of missing out can really, really hurt people. Um, by all means, ha have some exposure to risk in markets because we don't know where this can go. I mean, this could go you know, to the moon from here. We haven't even talked about what the impact on the margin of you know, the whole world going to sort of passive strategies does. That can be pretty dramatic. But caution is required. So, you know, people shouldn't be leveraged long. <clears throat> if you have a mortgage, you are leveraged long. You know, you, you've borrowed to buy an asset and you've borrowed a lot. So, you know, take down as much leverage as you can out of your sort of overall personal portfolio um, and, and be building up cash. And people will say, oh, yeah, but cash earns me zero. That's awful. Zero in tough environments is a wonderful outcome at times. and this is looking to us like it's one of those times or, or, you know, on the verge of being. Thank you so much. On that point, I'm 
reading Anti-Fragile at the moment and the point that Tyler makes pretty much the whole way through that book is that debt is fragile and cash is anti-fragile, which is not a bad thing to be right now. Exactly, exactly. Not a bad thing to be. Julian, you guys have so many great ideas and insights that you put out in the world that give people uh, some insight into your thinking. How do people get in touch with you and keep up to date with Platinum's thoughts on markets and opportunities? People can literally just call us and they'll talk to someone, you know, like me. That's, um, uh, you know, if they just go to our website, platinum.com.au, we, we produce a lot of content every week. Um, and if people want to learn more, you know, just, just contact us. We're, we're very happy to talk to people um, anytime. Julian McCormack uh, from Platinum International, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure, Gemma. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening now, as always. We do genuinely love to hear from you. In this environment, plenty of people have plenty of questions. If there are any topics you'd like to hear more about or guests you'd like to hear from, please just email your suggestions to yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.